Well, we're in Matthew 22 today. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 33. Why don't you get the page in your Bible and then stand up with me and let's read the Scripture together just to get things started right here. Matthew 22, I'm going to be starting verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees came to him, saying, They're the ones who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, you're wrong because you do not know, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you never read what was said to you by God? I am God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You may be seated. So what we have here is a couple stories where people are in Jesus' face and they are trying to trip him up. And uh, they don't really know who they're talking to. They, they recognize him. They say, oh, that's Jesus. But they don't really know who Jesus is. And um, <clears throat> Pastor Tandy told me a story on himself when he was pastoring up I think it was in Long Beach area, and the Rams were there, and a, a couple of the Rams players started coming to church. And so Tandy went to one of the Rams practices, and he's sitting on the sideline watching the Rams practice, and there's a man a couple of rows away who's yelling things on the field. And Tandy, who was, a, believe it or not, was a quarterback in high school way back when, um, was listening to this and just couldn't believe some of the things the guy's saying. And finally, he turned to the guy and he goes, Hey, he says, you don't seem to know football. Why don't you just shut up? Or something like that. <laughs> and the guy looked at him and said, oh, well, do you know who I am? Tandy said, no. He says, I'm the Rams owner. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to know who you're really talking to. And these people are talking to Jesus, and we've been walking with Jesus on a walk over the last few chapters towards Jerusalem because he has stated that he is going to fulfill his purpose of why he came into the world, and that is to seek and to save sinners. That because of sin, there's a separation from God. The relationship with God was broken. And the only way to get that right is for innocent blood to be shed, and none of us are innocent. And so God sent Jesus into the world, and the Bible's claim is that Jesus is God. And he arrived in this world in human flesh, and he, 
He looked like anybody else. He would have fit right in. You wouldn't have been able to recognize to have because it wasn't he was tall or handsome or anything like that. In fact, the, uh, the Bible says there was nothing physically about him that would attract you to him, uh, uh, you know, above anybody else. But he was actually God in human flesh. And so he has done miracle after miracle after miracle. The disciples have figured out who he really is. And it was at that point that he began to explain to them, we're going to Jerusalem so that I can suffer and die for the sin of the world. And along the way on that walk, they came across a couple of blind men who begged him, Jesus, open our eyes. And he honored their request because he could and because he cared and because he was concerned and had, was full of compassion for people. And he's still that way. And then he runs headlong into these people who don't know that he's the owner. The Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. And they're all striving to acquire or to maintain their positions of power. And they thought to themselves that they were the authorities. But they're blind. They're blind to the fact that Jesus is God and that he is the authority over everything, that God has placed everything in his hands, everything. And when presented with overwhelming evidence, they disregard or they discard the evidence because it doesn't support their foregone conclusion that they're the authority. I've, I've gone on several trips to Israel. In fact, we're having one to Egypt and Israel in March, and I'd love to have you going with me. But all the trips and even other people have come back and said there's a common denominator. So you, you've I've gone on this trip, and you, you get a guide, like in Israel, and they will take you. The, every group has a guide, and the guide seems to know everything. Now, I know they go to school for about three years uh, to learn so that they can answer just about anything about their country or the economy or the agriculture or the politics or the history, both recent and ancient, and the scriptures. And the guide will take you, read sig significant scriptures in the Old and the New Testament, and then take you to key spots and will engage you in conversation about those scriptures on the actual places that they happened in the life of Jesus. And they know the verses that they memorize some of the chapters by heart. And it will take you a few days to realize that although this person has studied the Bible in depth and they're taking you to some of the Christianity's most sacred spots, they know everything except the Savior. They know all about him. They never met Jesus. They've never come to the place of saying, I need to ask Jesus to have a relationship with me. I need to say, Jesus, I need to recognize that you are God and you love me and you have died in my place and I simply need to say, come into my life and forgive my sin and be my savior. And then God does that. And Jesus is waiting for that moment. He loves you. These people know all about the Bible, but they miss the point. The point is that God loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you. He doesn't want you to just collect more facts and figures. So the big question is, do you know Jesus or do you just know about him? We can collect all kinds of facts, all kinds of knowledge. Do you know Jesus? See, we know that Jesus is God and that he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And he attracted attention by the miracles that he did because there was no way to explain those other than the power of God. Who else could give sight to the blind? Who else could uh, make five little loaves into a, a lunch for thousands? Who else could walk on the water? Who else could raise the dead? He did all those things in public. People saw it. He spoke God's truth to the people in a way they would understand. And he invited people into a relationship with God based on their faith. 
And crowds would follow him. They were hanging on his every word. But Jesus didn't come to earth to win a popularity contest. He didn't come to set his king on the Jewish throne or to throw out the Roman overlords. His primary purpose was to pay the price for the sin of the world. Your sin and mine. You can't atone for it. There's not enough good deeds you can do to atone for your own sin. And Jesus took the sin on himself by dying on the cross. So here he is headed to the Passover feast in Jerusalem for that specific purpose. And he has shared with his followers that he is going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And they go, oh, oh, wait a minute. That is not a good idea. It was not their plan because they aspired to greatness and they saw Jesus as their ticket to power and authority and influence. And Jesus said, this is why I was born. This is what we're going to do. And they loved Jesus, so they kept following him even all the way to Jerusalem. The masses thought Jesus was a miracle worker or a great teacher or perhaps a prophet or a holy man. A few of them actually believed that he was God in human flesh, and they worshiped him. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day were not in that group. They led people in religious services. They worked in the temple. They studied the Torah. They followed the law of Moses. They had memorized most of the Bible, but they did not welcome Jesus with open arms. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power and authority, to the balance they had found in their life. And they loved the praise of people more than the praise of God. And Jesus had already distracted enough of their fan base, they thought. And if they acknowledged that Jesus actually came from God and was God, it would cost them. Whoa, so much. Too much, they thought. They would have to humble themselves and admit their shortcomings and ask God to forgive them and put Jesus in charge and then follow him. And instead, they just picked at him and found fault with him and criticized him to his face and behind his back. They engaged Jesus in conversation, confrontations really, harsh interactions with sharp edges. And even though they lost the argument time after time after time, they refused to recognize Jesus' authority. And he didn't insist on it and doesn't today. In fact, our key passage is Matthew 22, but if you go back just a page to Matthew 21, he's just finishing up one of the arguments with them. And in verse 31, he says, Truly I say to you, he's talking to the religious leaders, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteous. John was a prophet, of course, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him. Now, if somebody said that to you, somebody of authority, somebody who really knew said, do you know, prostitutes and tax collectors are going to heaven before you do. You'd say, wait a minute, I attend church, I go to Sunday school, I help out, I put in my offering, I'm good, at, I, I haven't sinned like these other people have. It, it would wake you up if you actually believed them. You say, what do I need to do to be right with God? What do I have to do? I've, I've been doing so much already. Maybe you haven't done the right things, starting by just asking God to forgive and then follow Jesus Christ. 
to the listening crowds right after he said this, after he said the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to heaven before you do, he said, told three parables against these leaders for their lack of obedience to God, for their hardness of heart, for pushing God out. And instead of letting their hearts be broken by the things that break the heart of God, they come back at Jesus pushing for a public fight, wave after wave of them, wanting to humiliate Jesus publicly in front of his adoring crowds. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15 of chapter 22. The Pharisees had left that bruising experience with Jesus and gone out and, and kind of had their own little huddle to say, what are we going to do? I tell you what, let's ask him a question that doesn't have a right answer that can only humiliate and embarrass him. And so they get together, they sent some of their disciples, some of their junior Pharisees, and uh, along with the Herodians. Now, if you knew, you'd realize that's quite a diverse mix. You've got the Pharisees who've spent their lives studying the, 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 the Bible and uh, presumably wanting to know what God has to say and loving the, the nation that they have. And you have the Herodians that are not Jewish. Basically, they're like the, the, um, the police force for Herod and his family, and is one of his descendants that was now on the throne. And so these two groups, the Pharisees anyway, would have had intense feelings of, of hatred against the Herodians because if they weren't Jewish, they were still selling out their state to the Romans and supporting the, the very government that the Pharisees hated. So these two groups somehow, though, have gotten together so that they can oppose Jesus. And they come and they try to entangle him in his words. So, you know, sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap, but I realized this week this was kind of humorous. Half the New Testament was written by a Pharisee. Okay, an ex-Pharisee. He had been so ardent in, in, in uh, persecuting Christians, trying to snuff that out right after Christ had died on the cross and rose again and then went to heaven and gave God's spirit to lead and guide. His name is Paul. And God actually had knocked him off his high horse. You can read about it in the book of Acts and blinded him in the process and caused him to have a midlife crisis early and to say, what am I going to do with my life now? And I have heard the voice of God. And in the process, he lost his physical eyesight for a period of time and he gained spiritual insight. His name was Paul. And here's what he wrote, later wrote. It's in 2 Timothy 2, verse, uh, chapter 3. He wrote to one of his associate pastors. And here's what he said to them. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now that doesn't really sound 2,000 years old, does it? It sounds like it could be more current, like you would read that, you know, well, here's who we saw last week at school or at work. Verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women or men, I might add. We've had things that creep into our homes, don't we, and influence us in negative or sinful ways. And then verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I need more facts. I need more data. There's more I've got to gather before I can make a decision. I know that I'm a sinner. I know Jesus is God. I know he's the only way to God, but I want to keep checking. I want to keep my options open. I want to wait a little longer. You don't know how long you have. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Trudy McCabe. She hugged and kissed her husband one night. In the morning when he kissed her, she was cold. There was no warning. You don't know. She knew the Lord and lived a beautiful life. You just don't know. Always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. These Pharisees are in that group. That's that's, that's the one Paul's talking about. They start with flattery to Jesus. What they said was actually accurate. They spoke the truth. They said, Jesus, you're, you're true. You're the truth. And you're taught the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about people's opinion because you're not swayed by their appearances. They spoke the truth, but they didn't believe it. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? What they're saying is true, but you know they're up to something. They just said it, but it didn't impact their thoughts or their beliefs or their behavior. If If they had just listened to what they said, and if they actually believed the truth that they said, then they would have had to question themselves. Since Jesus is true, because Jesus is the truth, since Jesus teaches God's way accurately, therefore I should do what? Well, not just keep going your headstrong way. You shouldn't just keep opposing Jesus. You should really let your heart be broken and say, God, come alive in me and lead and guide my thoughts so that I think like you, so that I follow you. But instead, they ask their zinger question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I think they're actually asking, is it required for us to pay taxes to this, what we consider an illegitimate government over us, a government that we hate, and we're paying for this Roman government that we hate, and everybody in Jesus' crowd, of course, is listening now. Oh, my goodness, he's going to tell us. Maybe we don't have to do that anymore. And, uh, you know, they have taxation without representation, and they think they've got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Should you support the Romans and pay your taxes or resist and start an insurrection and not pay your taxes? Which one? (laughs) They think they've got him. This is a yes or no, and either answer looks bad. It's kind of like answering the question, did you stop beating your wife? You know, there's, there's, there's no good way to answer the question. So pay your taxes? If Jesus says yes, his adoring crowd is not gonna like that answer. But the Herodians are waiting to hear him say yes. Don't pay your taxes? Well, the Pharisees are waiting to hear him say that. Because your Herodians will have your head before nightfall. And then you won't be our problem anymore. Because you've just encouraged people to revolt and to break the law. Jesus is aware of their malice. And so he says, why do you test me, hypocrites? See, hypocrites are people, they don't care about the taxes. They don't care about the truth. They don't care what Jesus is teaching. They just want to discredit Jesus so people stop listening to him, stop believing in him, stop adoring him, stop following him. He says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus says, whose likeness is on this? Well, the coin was one of Caesar. It was pressed into the coin. The coin had been made in the image of Caesar. Now think about this, though. The Pharisees who were asking the question were created in the image of God. 
So when you see the coin and you see Caesar's image on it, you're supposed to be reminded, this is the guy who's in charge. This is the one who we pay our taxes to him. And from that, we receive uh, support and protection and roads and uh, other benefits. And so Jesus says, show me the coin. And they put one in his hand. Now, nobody fessed up about having it in his pocket. In fact, they said they brought it to Jesus. They brought him a denarius. This isn't the coin you could put in the offering because the Jews had one of their commandments. It was no graven image. You couldn't have an image of a person like this because you're supposed to have no one before you except God. So nobody fessed up to it, and somebody probably had to go fetch one. But here's these Pharisees that themselves are made in the image of God. It's stamped right into them, into their DNA, into their person. Each one of them, each one of us, Genesis tells us, was made in the image of God. And since God created every person, every person has this image of God stamped in them, a God-shaped vacuum that, that cannot be satisfied for by anything or anybody except God. We can stuff other things in. We can get ourselves too busy. There's this gnawing craving. I've just got to find out. And that's God drawing you to himself. So Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? They said, well, Caesar's. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Boy, if he just stopped right there, the Herodians would have been so happy. Yes, Jesus saying, pay your taxes. Obey the government that's over you. Be a responsible citizen. Paul even wrote about this to the Romans. He's in prison himself, but he wrote in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Obey the government as a way to honor God. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate? The Jews had brought him there. They were trying to figure out how to get him crucified. Pilate's the only one who has the power, and he doesn't want to. He's gotten a note from his wife that said, have nothing to do with that guy. Um, he, he is innocent. And then Pilate learns, Jesus claims to be son of God. And in John 19, starting verse 9, it says, Pilate entered into his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it's been given you from above. Pilate had no answer and began to look for ways that he could release Jesus, but he didn't find a way. Jesus is making the point that governments are placed over us by God. So we respect them out of respect for God. Peter even mentioned this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So as citizens of a nation, we're required to pay money for services and benefits and protections we receive. But we who follow Christ are citizens of the kingdom of heaven at the same time. We have a dual citizenship. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven means we have full allegiance to Jesus Christ. We pledge to God our primary obedience and commitment. So Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Well, what belongs to God? Everything. All, a hundred percent, everything. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
Everything belongs to God. Think about this. Even Caesar belongs to God. Caesar, who had a birthday, who was going to have a death day, who thought he was in charge of everything, thought he was all-powerful, sometimes claimed to be God, wasn't. He was going to die someday and stand to give an account for his life. And God is no respecter of persons. Human authority is temporary and it's limited. And we have this dual citizenship. We are citizens of a particular country in the world with its privileges and responsibilities. And we are followers of Jesus Christ. So we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we have obligations to both. And we're to submit to the laws of the land out of reverence for Christ as part of our submitting to the authority of Christ up to and until those laws of the land would put us in disobedience to Christ then it's time to refuse. So you have in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John. Peter's just done a miracle on his way into the temple. A lame guy that sat there long enough, everybody knows him. Jesus must, himself must have walked past him several times. The guy asked Peter for, an, for, a, for a gift, and Peter says, look at me. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man's legs become empowered. He leaps to his feet. It says he went walking and leaping and praising God, followed them into the temple. Everybody sees the guy. And for that, Peter and John got arrested. They got called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin. And they finally, after they wrangled about it for a while, they finally said, tell you what, we'll let you go on this one condition. Stop talking about Jesus like he's God. We put him to death. We know he came back. We don't want anybody to know that. Stop talking about him. And Peter, who's this fisherman, talking to the most learned people in the land, said, well, <clears throat> you're really putting me in a quandary because am I going to obey you or am I going to obey God? And in Acts 5.29, it says, we must obey God rather than men. These are the same people who about 60 days before this had put Jesus to death. Peter and John knew they were serious, probably figured we're going to lose our lives today. But they were going to submit themselves to that authority until it caused them to have to disobey God. Then he said, nope, God's the higher authority. And so we live in this tension, but we have to have both. That We don't just invest everything and focus all of our thoughts and all of our efforts on the here and now. Because here and now compared to heaven is, is just... It's just a snap. It's just a little bit. And we're going to live in heaven for a long time. And so these Pharisees are at the intersection at a crossroads. They could have recognized Jesus' superior intelligence and ability and authority and submitted to him or keep looking for another loophole or more data or thinking about they were still in charge and how do we get him next time. So it says they left him and they went away. And it's sad, it's tragic really, that the next verse doesn't say, but instead they turned around, came back, they got down on their knees, bowing before Jesus, and they worshipped him, said, you are God, and we worship you, and ask, what would you have us do next? You won't find that verse in the Bible, it's not there. They went away with hard hearts. See, Jesus said, show me the coin. They so they saw the coin, but they missed the Christ because they were blind and they didn't want to see. Always learning, never arriving at the truth. Always learning, never arriving. Now it's your turn. It's my turn. It's our turn. I mean, I guess you didn't start out today waking up saying, let me go see if I can pick a fight with Jesus like these guys did. Okay, but you've heard his voice. 
He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Caesar wants your money. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. What are you going to do? You hear him say he wants your heart. You hear him say he's knocking on the door. He opens the door. You can come in. Are you going to leave and walk away? Are you going to ignore him? Are you going to just say, I'm not going to make any changes? I mean, do you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Do you render to God the things that are God's? Or do you just think about it, talk about it, mull it over, and never arrive at a conclusion? Wait for later to decide. You know, delay the moment of decision, the logical change that should occur. I mean, here the conclusion really is put Jesus in charge in your life because he's the God who gives authority to the governments of the world. And he's the ruler over religion who draws people towards God. And he's the miracle worker who gives spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. The Pharisees couldn't handle it. They decided not that day. They left and they went away. But the persecution and rejection of Jesus continued with the next group, the Sadducees. Now, if the Pharisees were the conservatives, the Sadducees are, the, are more liberal. They've got a strict interpretation of the, the only part of the Bible they're going to recognize is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. That's it. Nothing else. So in those five books, they don't find any writing about life after death or the resurrection of the body after death. So they don't believe in that. They believe that when your body dies, your soul dies too. Well, that belief makes this life really important because if you only go around once in life, then make it count. Go for the gusto. Grab all the power you can. So the Sadducees come to Jesus thinking there is no resurrection. When you die, you're done. And they're thinking, Jesus believes in that resurrection stuff. We should shame him. And so we're going to tell him a story that only has only one conclusion. Of course there's no resurrection. That's just a fairy tale I tell people. Because they were always learning and never arriving. So they come to Jesus, not believing, and they tell this story. They say, you know, Moses in the law, which he does, he gives this provision that if a man dies, his, his brother brings his wife into the home and uh, has a, a son that is named after his father. That's in Deuteronomy 25. And so it's in the fifth book of Moses. And in practice, this really wasn't done very much, if at all. And there's not another case of it in the Bible where, okay, they said, this is what happened, so here's what we did um, following this scripture. So these Sadducees are trying to show that the resurrection is a myth, and they're going, basically, come on, Jesus, tell the truth to everybody. They're right here listening. We've got, a right, we've got this right, don't we? And uh, Jesus says, well, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures or the power of God. He says, first, you err because you don't know the scriptures. I mean, Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12 talk about the resurrection of the body. Heaven is real. It's a real place. And heaven is not just like life on earth, just upgraded. No, the Bible says, I, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus, you err because you don't know the scriptures. The Bible talks about there is a heaven, there is a hell. People have a choice while they're in this life where they're going to spend eternity. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, you err because you don't believe in the power of God. You think people are dead and they're gone. And so he takes them to an interesting spot. He goes to Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus 3, Moses, who had been this prince, PhD kind of guy, and had a breaking experience and actually murdered somebody, then to save his own life he had to run, and he's tending sheep for 40 years, feeling like a failure. 
marching a bunch of sheep around in the wilderness. He sees this bush that's on fire and it doesn't go out. So he gets curious. He goes over to it and he hears a voice say, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy. And he says, well, who, 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 who are you? And um, that's where you pick up Jesus' quote from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Because the voice said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Jesus says, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who died, you think, 400, 450, 500 years before Moses. So they've been dead for about 2,000 years. You think they're dead. They are alive. I know those guys. And you think that everything is here and now and that this life is all that matters and it's just a moment. It's just a snap. It's just compared to eternity. Open your eyes, Sadducees. Live this life with eternity in focus. Don't do all your efforts, all your investing here because this doesn't last. But eternity does and Jesus says, you think you're in charge. You think you are the authority in your life. And you're failing to see that you were created by God. You were gifted by God. You have, you're blessed by God. You owe God your life, your allegiance, and your all. And the conclusions that Jesus wanted the Sadducees to reach was, know the scripture. Yeah, you study them. You meditate. Take them to heart. Arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Get the data Study it out and then make a decision. Believe in the power of God and put God in charge. Well, it says when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. And it's sad there's no verse that says, and the Sadducees' eyes were open to the truth and they realized that God was in charge of everything. So bowing before Jesus, they asked for his forgiveness and they put God in charge in their life and in their heart. That'd be great, but that verse doesn't exist because it didn't happen. Because they were committed to hang on to their position even though they knew that it wasn't right because it was their position of power and influence and they were going to hang on to it even if it killed them. Which is their choice? To always be learning and never arrive. What does this mean for us? I mean, it's our turn. How about we choose to be people who arrive at the knowledge of the truth? We study the data, we then we pray and ask God to guide us, we listen to his voice, and we pray, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. We want to see the truth. If Jesus is really God, then follow him. If Jesus, as they accused him, is true, he's the truth, he speaks truthfully, then listen to what Jesus says and just follow him, obey him. Do you know Jesus or do you just know about Jesus? Because you were created in the image of God and you're not really free just to go your own way. You need to choose. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, open our eyes. Lord, we, we want to see you for who you really are. You're the owner. You're the authority. You're the one and only Savior. And we need you. Open our eyes to the truth. Give us the courage to follow you. Amen.